0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Bold, Beautiful, Borderline podcast. It's Zara and Talon, and today we are here to read the second half of chapter two of Stop Walking on Eggshells for the BPD Book Club mini miniseries. Um, before we get started, though, did you guys know that I created a website, built it myself? This is not an ad. I feel like that would- <laughs> feel like I need to say this is not a Squarespace ad. However, I did build it with Squarespace. So maybe they want to sponsor us. But on said website on the main page is a voicemail button so that you all can send us a little recording of thoughts, questions, concerns, ideas, and we can play them on the podcast. So check that out at boldbeautifulborderline.com. It's on the main page. So have fun with that. Okay, so we are getting back into the criteria in Chapter 2, the inner world of the borderline, starting at recurrent suicidal behavior, gestures, or threats.
1: What a great way to start. <laughs>
0: starting off strong. Just really, just jump right in. Um, do you have any thoughts before we jump right in?
1: Um, no. Okay, let's do it
0: to it. So this is the fifth criteria for diagnostics. And it says according to the DSM IV four. 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 Thank you. Yeah. About eight to ten percent of all people with BPD die by suicide.
1: So wait, we're on number five, right? For the DSM?
0: Yes. Okay. But some of the symptoms, some of the criteria, they like lump together, remember?
1: Yeah, no, I know. I just wanted to make sure that like I wanted to know what book we're on, what number we're on. Okay, five, yeah. We're on five. They're on four. Per, um because because that's the one they're citing right
0: holy shit we're having two different conversations they're referring to the dsm-4 yes yes we're on dsm-5 tr the translated updated version there's yeah. some slight changes to the diagnostic oh, okay. criteria okay. okay. um i thought you were talking about the fifth symptom oh
1: no no no, no. like okay. it, like the time period time period i understand in. like you remember that did thing we were watching the other day they were quoting the dsm3 right which came out in like 1984 or something so i just was like we're on five right we're on the fifth one
0: yeah well we're on like the second edition of the fifth one
1: got it okay <clears throat> okay
0: cool okay this does not include that um BPs, borderline people who engage in risky behavior that results in death, such as drinking and driving. Okay. Marsha Linehan, as of 1993, explains that suicide and other impulsive dysfunctional behaviors are seen as solutions to overwhelming, uncontrollable pain.
1: Okay, do we want to talk about how we're finally talking about Marsha? Uh, yeah,
0: well, page
1: 33. We're 30, and she's like... the queen of everything. And we're finally talking about her. I don't
0: know that everybody believes she's the queen of everything, but she's certainly done a lot of good for the field. Yeah. Okay. So Marsha is quoted as saying suicide, of course, is the ultimate way to change one's moods. Other less lethal behaviors can also be quite effective. Overdosing, for example, usually leads to long periods of sleep. Sleep in turn has an important influence on regulating emotional, emotional vulnerability. Suicidal behavior, including suicidal thoughts, is also very effective in eliciting behaviors from the environment. Help that may be effective in reducing the emotional pain. In many instances, such behavior is the only way an individual can get others to pay attention to and try to ameliorate their emotional pain. I think that was a really beautiful way of ex- explaining what people refer to as manipulative or attention seeking behavior like she got to the root of this is a way to meet a need while it's not effective it's what people have instead of dying
1: yeah i i agree with that that's why she's the queen of everything (laughs) the queen of everything because i mean like how else like that's like how else are you gonna describe something that is like oftentimes demonized right like people always say like oh like it's not serious they're just doing it for attention and that like minimizes and like invalidates the reason or the purpose for somebody's behavior in the first place right like i i don't know why we demonize like people needing attention like people need attention
0: right but, like the word attention is not inherently negative
1: no but like that's you know that's all i ever heard growing up when it came to like you know stuff like that so
0: X parents and boomer parents did not do well by us
1: no no they did
0: um okay i just want to prepare you that you're not going to like the story that they offer after
1: i appreciate that
0: okay so they're using an example my wife came home crying desperate because her boyfriend had dumped her Incredibly, she felt that I shouldn't be angry about the affair and that I should support her because of the pain she was feeling when I wasn't supportive enough. She started threatening suicide in front of our 10 year old son.
1: You're right. I don't like that story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, there,
1: I really wish that
0: is such a stigmatizing story. <sighs> yeah.
1: In many, many ways.
0: I mean, when we think about if she was she was in a profound amount of pain to exhibit those behaviors in front of a minor child. Yes. She was nowhere near regulated. Her distress was so high. But here's the thing. Nobody with borderline, when we're regulated, thinks it's okay to have an affair. Thinks it's okay to... Um, ask our husband to console us for said affair. Thinks it's okay to threaten suicide in front of a minor child that we're parenting. None of like, I am sure this woman when regulated looking back is like, "Oof, I fucked up. Mm-hmm. But why don't we talk about that?
1: Um, I, already oh, was that a rhetorical? I think what? it was. Okay. Rhetorical. okay. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I hate that story.
0: I hate that story. Okay. So, um,
1: it's, it's yeah, that's, and the language, too, like, my wife came home crying because her boyfriend dumped her. That And that's, like, the sentence, right? That's the first sentence. That sentence, at first, inherently leads me to believe that he knew about the boyfriend, right? Because the language, oh, her boyfriend, like, for me, that's, like, the husband knew. Yeah, maybe. But then he calls it an affair. So I'm like, okay, so she was... Was she cheating on you, or were you guys in an open relationship? Oh, no. This was definitely cheating. Totally. But, like, that one sentence, if you know anything about... Because that wants
0: you to give your emotional vulnerability to him.
1: Yeah. Instead of to her. And I don't like that. that I feel like I'm being tricked. I feel like I'm not being shown the entire side of the story.
0: Well, this is a three-sentence story, so I would agree that you're not...
1: Yeah, it just feels sneaky. It is sneaky. I don't like that.
0: I love... Academia, but is that not kind of like the sole um, limitation of data and research? Is that it's never conducted by a neutral party, right? I mean, you like there's 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 criteria, there's steps, there's a review board, there's a, there's like it, the data being analyzed by a person maybe not involved in collecting the data set. There's things that you would try to do to make data collection as objective as possible but at the end of the day nobody collects data unless they have a subjective interest in a thing you're all just like looking to prove your hypothesis correct and like I collected 150 pieces of data in graduate school to prove that hypothesis correct that queer people use substances more than straight people like I already knew that was true so like all of my creation of this research project was based from that subjective perspective.
1: Right. I
0: mean, you can't skew data, but the way that you write things can lead... A, a, an audience member too.
1: Right. Well, and like specifically like knowing your audience, right? Like you are going to write and cater to the people you want to read this book. Right. So like that, that is specifically written.
0: Right. Like I want to know, like, were you perhaps not having sex with your wife? Were you perhaps not providing like emotional support to your wife? Why did your wife have the affair?
1: Yeah. And
0: again, not his fault, not her fault, no. two people at fault.
1: Well, and like, but like
0: happy people, whose needs are being met if they believe in monogamy don't
1: have affairs correct and there's also like the caveat of like not just like oh were you having sex with her oh were her emotional needs being met but like were you there were you available were you helping out with the mental work that comes from raising a child having a home like running a family like were you there in any additional, and I say additional because, like, the bar is so low. Right. For partners. For male partners. Male partners. Cis male partners. Like, were were you there? Or was she running that fucking show by herself to the point where, like, she couldn't even, like, possibly connect with you?
0: I mean, who knows? But I think we that, don't know. that's a good overview of being a person with borderline is the behavior is often so dramatized from the observer that they can't look at the context
1: right there and so, in, in this book that's perfect because there is no context ever provided for us so it makes sense that this entire book is an over dramatization and essentially like painting people with bpd is a bunch of overreactors
0: i'm gonna get sued <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yeah, okay, I'm probably going to get sued, too. And it goes
0: on to talk about self-mutilating behavior. We've already kind of given our, our ideas about self-mutilating behavior. However, it does say um, self-injury is a coping mechanism that borderline people use to release or manage overwhelming emotional pain, usually feelings of shame, anger, sadness, and abandonment. Self-mutilation may release the body's own opiates, known as beta endorphins. These chemicals lead to a general feeling of well-being. Therefore, the reasons for self-mutilation may include to feel alive, to feel less numb and empty, to feel more numb, to express anger, to punish themselves, to somehow prove they are not as bad as they think they are, to relieve stress, to feel in control. It goes on to talk a lot about causes, and then it gives some language from people with borderline on self-mutilation, which I love. So let's read all of those. To tell you the truth, I think I did it so someone would notice that, in fact, I needed help. When I hurt myself, I don't have to try to explain how bad I am feeling. When I get angry at someone, I want to destroy, hurt, or kill them. But I know that I can't hurt the person, so I take the anger out on myself. When my father stopped abusing me, I had to make up for the hurt that suddenly disappeared.
1: Jesus.
0: For me, the scars were just outside paintings of what my parents did i am not mad at this section i think that this section is very normalizing
1: i think so too
0: and i think when you bring back the trauma-informed piece of this it's easier for an outsider to understand
1: yeah the last one particularly like just an outward presentation of what my parents did that alludes to like emotional and verbal and like abuse that doesn't leave a mark but is still like with us forever Mm -hmm. um so like i think that's also super important in normalizing i don't know that that part of victimhood because i think that like that's still minimized
0: sure It goes on to say that people with BPD are often very Mm -hmm. aware of their own reasons for self-injury, but an intellectual understanding doesn't make it any easier to stop. It can become like an addiction. I think that was good. Yeah. All right. Going on to um, the sixth criteria, effective instability due to a marked reactivity of mood. When most people feel bad, they can take steps to feel better. They can also control to some extent how much their moods affect their relationships with others. People with BPD have a hard time doing this. Their mood may swing from intense anger to depression, depression to irritability, and irritability to anxiety within a few hours. Most borderline people, most non-borderline people often find this unpredictability exhausting me at target last night
1: <laughs> you at target last night i was not anything at all for me
0: oh yeah i know it wasn't anything for you
1: yeah i was the mood not inst- exhausted i guess i should say
0: yeah my mood instability doesn't bother you
1: no it really doesn't
0: yeah it bothers me
1: right right i know. <laughs> I know it does. It bothers you more than it bothers me. I'm like,
0: man, what a fucking roller coaster in my little noggin.
1: Yeah. Sometimes I feel like, when we're reading this book, like I, f- I kind of feel like I should be more affected, but I'm just not. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. It gives a story. Living with my borderline husband is horrible. One minute and hell. Oh. Living with my borderline husband is heaven one minute and hell the next. Oh, God.
1: I hate that. I hate <laughs> that. Polarizing, like...
0: Well, just wait. I call his personalities Jekyll and Hyde. I Ugh.
1: walk
0: I walk on eggshells trying to please someone who blows up just because I spoke too soon, too quickly, in the wrong tone, and with the wrong facial motions.
1: Okay. That's... Okay. That, like, oh, just because I used the wrong tone, like that offends me personally as somebody who is very sensitive to tone like i'm so sensitive to people's facial expressions and tone because like you that that's like a that's like a survival like thing like people who are like, like
0: reading tone you reading mean reading
1: tone reading facial expressions like of the people around you particularly the people you care about like and, like, the, the like, oh, I spoke in the wrong tone, or I, I did this too soon, like, that just, like, completely minimizes, like, the potential of, like, what your tone was. Sure. Like, and, and that, like, I think, like, and I'm not saying, like, we have to, like, you know, we're not perfect human beings, you know, and I have a shitty tone sometimes. Then I'm not even almost aware of it occasionally. And that doesn't, like... That doesn't make that okay that like my tone on on the you know on the whim or whatever like if that hurt your feelings or made you feel shitty that's not okay right so like oh well that that's just so dismissive and fucking invalidating and like i don't even have i don't have bpd and like that hurts my feelings because that makes me that rubs on my raw spot of being called sensitive, overdramatic, like a baby, whatever, all because someone talked to me in a shitty tone when, like, it feels excruciating for someone to, like, snap at you or be shitty to you when you just, like, were.
0: Right. Well, I think what you said water. is important, too, because you don't have borderline and that affects you.
1: Yeah. Like, it, intensely. Intensely.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I think like when I when I look back at social emotional learning for young people, it's so much more what you say than how you say it, which is like really inconsistent with biology, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly when we're looking at male communication patterns like men don't use a lot of words that's proven in research. And so so much of their communication comes in tone, body language, eye contact, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm um yeah
1: so we could even talk we could even say that like men potentially are a little bit more sensitive to tone
0: perhaps but they're not empowered to be sensitive exactly so like okay so it says chronic feelings of emptiness see number three on page 29 which means they were lumping it in with identity disturbance and we talked about that in the previous episode if anybody wants to go back Number eight is the bane of my existence. <laughs>
1: okay. Okay. What is it?
0: Inappropriate intense anger or stop looking over my shoulder. Inappropriate intense anger or difficulty controlling anger. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. If you care about someone with BPD, you are probably very familiar with this trait borderline rage is usually intense unpredictable and unaffected by logical argument it is like a torrential flash flood a sudden earthquake or a bolt of lightning on a sunny day and it can disappear as quickly as it appears very true i like that i like that that imagery Mm -hmm. some people with borderline have the opposite problem they feel unable to express their anger at all in her text, Linehan writes that borderline individuals who under-express anger fear they will lose control if they express even the slightest anger and at other times feel um, that they are targets of even even minor expression. So this is interesting because I think this is referring to a group of people who call themselves quiet borderlines. Oh. I think like one of the... Um, folks who have consistently attended my DBT drop-in groups refers to themselves as a quiet borderline. And I have, I think, heard them say that feeling of, I am afraid to essentially open the floodgates. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. I also, I guess, oh, this is nice. I can relate to some of these things. Um, I have a lot of shame around my anger and like the way, like, my dysregulation presents right like i present very angry like when i'm not even feeling angry right like i'm anxious or upset or something like that like i present very very frustrated and very angry
0: you're Uh, kind of flat yeah at times yeah
1: flat to cold i think yeah um and i have a lot of shame around my feelings of anger um So I I get, like, the not wanting to express your anger because of the potential, like, result of it or the reaction from another person and, like, not really, like, knowing if um, it's a safe space to express anger, you know? Yeah. I get that.
0: They do go on to say that people often take borderline rage personally and become upset by it, which I think is um, a good thing to note because, like... When I am angry at someone for something, they have justifiably made me angry. Meaning, like, I fact check it and, like, oh, yeah, okay, this is not borderline anger. This is, like, this is anger. Like, this is disappointment. This is, like, this is real human emotion, not human emotion on, you know, the moon (laughs) Just is what it feels like having borderline sometimes. I don't outwardly express it.
1: True. I
0: get very quiet, very internal, and I walk away. And I don't even have to think about that. Mm-hmm. When my anger is not justified, it is outward. Yes. And that's, like, kind of the difference for me of, like, I remember telling a partner many years ago. You should be worried for the day that I break up with you and I don't cry.
1: Yeah.
0: And I don't yell.
1: Yeah.
0: And because there was so many breakups where I was crying and screaming and throwing things and blah, 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 yada, yada. And then there was like a Wednesday afternoon by text message where I was like, we're not getting married. It's over.
1: Yeah.
0: And I was like, very. Like, I was like, nope, this is the right decision. I am okay." Yeah. And I remember them being like, oh, shit, you're not crying. And I was like, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I like also that they said that it's uh, not – it's unaffected by logical argument. Right. I really appreciate that, too. I would even say that, like, in some cases trying to use logic – Makes it worse. Sure. Um, well, yeah.
0: You can't like you can't logic you can't your way logic out of... your way out of something that's illogical. Yeah. The only thing you can do is use your distress tolerance skills, mm-hmm. your stop skill, your yep. tip skill, your mindfulness skills. Like, take a break. Yeah. Take a long break before you come back to this one, baby.
1: Absolutely. Well, and that that's like the thing is like I like I always think of it as like you can't logic your way out of emotion. No. Like because like it's. There is no logic. So, like, you can't use logic to dig your way out of, like, an an emotional, visceral reaction, right? Like, you have to, like you said, essentially, like, use your skills and wait it out.
0: Sure. So, they give a good story by someone with borderline. When I can't control my surroundings, I become nervous and angry. It gets much worse when I'm under stress. When triggered, I can go from perfectly calm to full-blown, white-hot rage within a fraction of a sentence. Second. I think that my temper comes from the abuse I suffered as a child. At some point, I decided I didn't have to take my parents' abuse anymore. Raging back became a matter of survival. So now it's hard for me to feel concerned about the other person's feelings. In fact, I want them to hurt because they've hurt me. I know this sounds bad, but that's the way I feel when I'm in the middle of an outburst. I love he said that. Mm -hmm, Me too. I'm just trying to survive the best way I know how. Mm -hmm. So... It, it, for listeners of this podcast who don't have borderline, it's maybe conflicting to hear me say at times, I wanted that person to hurt as much as I hurt. And then also hear me say in separate episodes, nobody I know with borderline wants people to hurt, right? That is contradicting. If you're just like listening, the difference is, are we regulated? Or are we not regulated? When you're dysregulated in the moment, you want people to hurt because it's, like, you want to take this weight off your shoulders and give it to somebody else. Yeah. But when we're regulated, it's, like, oh, my God, give me all your weight. I will. T- I don't want you to hurt.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really good distinction. Also, like, in that, like, when you're dysregulated, it's not that you're intending to cause someone harm. You're right. trying to remove your own harm.
0: And that's the difference between, like, abuse, right, and... Unintentional violence. Yeah. Neither is acceptable. Correct. And at the end of the day, both end up being captured under the term abuse. Yeah. Abuse is not okay. We will never, ever, ever justify abuse, particularly um, towards vulnerable people. But the only way to stop abuse is to explore what the result is by what caused it yeah and that's so often overlooked because again the behavior is so large yeah okay so we go into the final diagnostic criteria transient stress-related paranoid ideation or severe dissociative symptoms have you ever arrived home from work without remembering how you got there You've traveled the route so many times that your brain let your eyes and reflexes do the driving. This out-of-it feeling is a mild type of dissociation. People who are severely dissociated, however, feel unreal, strange, numb, or detached. They may or may not remember exactly what happened while they were gone. The degree of dissociation from vary, can vary from this car trip home to extreme dissociation, where people may experience multiple personalities, now called dissociative identity disorder. People with BPD may dissociate to different degrees to escape from emotional feelings or painful situations. The more stressful the situation, the more likely it is that the person will dissociate. In extreme cases, people with BPD may lose all contact with reality for a brief period of time. If the borderline in your life reports memories of shared situations quite differently from you, dissociation may be one possible example. Um, do you want to talk about that since I don't ever know what's happening when I dissociate?
1: Um, yeah.
0: I think that was a good overview of dissociation,
1: by the way. I completely agree. Um, I don't really know. Um, I don't really know where to start with that. Um.
0: I mean, and we don't have to.
1: No, I mean, I think, I think it's valuable. I think it's like valuable information, um, I guess like I knew what dissociation was. I have experienced mild dissociation throughout my life. Um a uh but like uh, I I have never I had never before meeting you seen somebody dissociate. Um and so like the first couple of times that it happened um I well, the first time it happened, I, I didn't really, I didn't really understand what was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and you left my my house. Mm-hmm. And then the second time that it happened, that I remember, um, I was at your house, and you came to and you were like, "What the fuck are you doing here?" And I was like, uh, <laughs> "We're hanging out." Um, and I didn't really realize um, that you had dissociated until you were like, "I I dissociated. I was gone." And I was like, "Oh, that makes sense because you know you were not." like super responsive like you were but like your your voice changes slightly and like your movements and actions are um like slower um and then like after those two times i was like able to like kind of i guess pick up on when it was happening and and then you know move on from there or whatever Um, yeah
0: i mean it doesn't i i i probably dissociated when i was younger but really like i didn't start to dissociate until probably the last like year or so when my emotion regulation became so much more under control that like I don't exhibit outward um anger or fear or um, sadness or shame the same way I had historically I think my brain is like yeah we're 29 now we can't be doing all this shit yeah. let's just like check out for a yeah, let's leave
1: um but yeah, you're, yeah, like, I don't know. I think that, like, when it comes to, like, being a partner or in a relationship with somebody, like, with BPD or anybody, really, who dissociates, like, I think that um, no, making sure that they're safe is wonderful and making sure that they're comfortable is wonderful. And, like, what I, I don't know if this is right or not, but, like, I don't attempt to, like, pull you out of your dissociation. No. Like, I get you all, like, snuggled up wherever we're at generally speaking like you're mildly responsive so like i'll ask you like do you want to lay down like do you want this or whatever i get you comfy and then i wait it out yeah um because i like i think that like dissociation is a is a coping mechanism and it's something that like needed or yeah needed to happen for you in that time so i'm like not trying to like rush you out of it yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, I just I just waited out. I remember one time um, I, like, put you to bed, and you fell asleep, and you woke back up, and you were, like, did you lay here the entire time? And I was, like, yeah. And you were, like, you're such a golden retriever. And I was, like, yeah. And you just looked so, like, you couldn't even believe that I, like, laid with you for... You know, I think I laid with you for over like two hours, you know, I was just playing my switch, like checking in on you and stuff, but yeah, you like woke up, you were back and you were like, you know, just, did I dissociate? And I was like, yeah, I just like put you to bed and I just like laid here with you to make sure you were okay. And you were like, you laid here with me for that long. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Um, So I don't know, your, your surprise at that broke my heart. Um, yeah, <laughs> so
0: okay, it goes on to list additional BPD traits. We're not going to talk about all of them. The first is shame, I think everybody knows in this podcast by now. Um, I like, sh- you know, how Lori and I feel about shame,
1: yeah.
0: Um, the next is undefined boundaries. Again, I think everybody knows how we feel about boundaries. They're really hard when you're trying to get your needs met. Um, Control issues. I guess this is worth reading through for a second. I
1: was going to ask if we could read that one because that one's interesting to me.
0: So it says borderlines may need to feel in control of other people because they feel out of control with themselves. In addition, they may be trying to make their own world more predictable and manageable. People with BPD may unconsciously try to control others by putting them in no-win situations, creating chaos that no one else can figure out, or accusing others of trying to control them. Conversely, some people with BPD may cope with feeling out of control by giving up their property, or they may choose a lifestyle where all choices are made for them, such as the military or a cult.
1: Sure. Okay, <laughs> just kind of throw or a cult, you know, just throw that fucking in there. Jesus.
0: Or they may align themselves with abusive people who try to control them through fear. I relate to that last last paragraph a lot, as someone who has been in many relationships where there was profound power differences. Right? I mean, my yes. my first girlfriend was my coach. Um, That was incredibly inappropriate and illegal. Mm -hmm. And I married a cop, which was also incredibly inappropriate um, for many reasons. And the two biggest differences in those relationships compared to like my relationship with you or my dynamic with Andrew was like a profound power Difference. I was constantly fighting for some sense of control in my marriage and I was never going to have it because law enforcement always came first. And I right. think that, um, I think that like the part of the reason that I sought out the relationship with my ex-wife was because I didn't trust myself to make decisions Right. I mean, you've been told your whole life you make terrible decisions. So here's someone who seemingly knows how to make decisions for you and you're tired and you're like, all right, keep me safe because I can't obviously keep myself safe. The direct result of that, though, was like when I could eventually keep myself safe years into the relationship, I didn't have autonomy. Mm -hmm. And then the relationship like blew up.
1: Right. Well, and I think that that like... (laughs) is an important thing um, that you touched on. Like you were told your whole life you couldn't or you didn't make good decisions when we're told something or we are perceiving something that is told to us over and over and over and over again, eventually no matter how strong or how smart or how strong our boundaries are, what our even our sense of self, right? No matter how strong that is, eventually if you are told something enough times for over a long period of time, you begin to believe that that is true. Yes. I've experienced it. You've experienced it. Like I was told that I sucked at the job that I was doing and that I was stupid long enough that like I believed that like I was stupid and I sucked at the job that I was doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, and those things like happen In multiple types of situations, like work or home or relationships, so on and so forth. But, like, eventually, like, you know, like, I have a very strong sense of self. You do. And I still had to, like, come back from being told that I was stupid and come back from being told that I couldn't do anything. Yeah. You know.
0: I remember when Andrew and I first started dating... And I was like going to meet some of his friends. I was wearing a top that was like see-through. And so you could see like my bralette under it. And I remember turning to him and saying, can I wear this? Is this okay? And he was like, please never ask me if you're allowed to wear something. You get to present yourself and your body however feels comfortable to you. Absolutely. And I was just like but I don't understand because I was in this relationship for four years where someone picked out my clothes. Yeah. And told me, you know, I mean, uh, like picked out my clothes is maybe dramatic, but it wasn't that far off.
1: No. Um, the things that you've described to me and the, the tone in which you were spoken to or dealt, I have quotation marks, uh, up dealt with in that relationship. Um,
0: like, t- my ex-wife told me I couldn't wear Birkenstocks to the Blazers game.
1: Right. Like, and then, <laughs> you know, like, that, oh, yeah. Like, the way you are describing it, I think, is more accurate than you even give yourself credit for. Yeah. Um. So... Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right. It goes on to talk about um, interpersonal sensitivity, uh, situational competence, meaning that um, people with BPD are competent and are in control of some situations. Um, Many people with BPD perform very well at work and are high achievers. Many are very intelligent, creative, and artistic, and this can be very confusing for family members who don't understand why the person can act so self-assured in one situation and fall apart in another.
1: I think that is super poignant, and I'm glad they brought that up.
0: Why? (laughs) Don't look at me like that.
1: (laughs) I think that that's super important because I think that like when you're on the outside looking at somebody you love you care about right like this right here actually is a really really great alludement to all of the um very skewed stories that we've been hearing all these people being perplexed about like i don't understand how they could be one way this way and one way that way i what the fuck that's like literally right there this should be this should be like its own chapter i think because like not only is situational competence like that covers all of the dualities of BPD, right? All these people, all these stories are asking, like, how could this amazing, beautiful, smart, funny, self assured person also be this, this, and this, and this? And they're listing all these negative attributes. Well, like situational competence, right? Like,
0: it goes on to say one borderline woman says, We know deep within that we are defective. So we try hard to act normal because we want so much to please everybody and keep the people in our lives from abandoning us. But this competence is a double-edged sword. We can appear so normal and often don't get the help that we need. And yeah. I know that a lot of people have said like, oh well, I'm not suicidal enough or inpatient or, you know.
1: Or like, oh, I don't I don't I don't drink that much. I'm not an alcoholic. Or sure. but, but like those are all like, you know, like, oh, I don't need, I'm fine. I'm functioning. It's not that bad. It could be worse. And I think that that's like...
0: I remember being in graduate school and I was seeing a nutritionist twice a week and a therapist. And I, you know, I lost 100 pounds in nine months. I was very sick. And the nutritionist was like, it's time. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, like, you have hit your rock bottom. It's time. It's time. And I said, like, what does that look like? And she was like, if you don't stop, you will have to be hospitalized in an inpatient facility. And I was like, but I work 40 hours a week and I have I'm in my like going into my senior year of graduate school. I can't drop out of school to go into an inpatient program for this eating disorder like i can't do that i can't drop out of work there's not time for that and she was like then you have to start eating and i remember like that was the only reason that i went into like you know dipped my toes into recovery because i was like i can't give up the only thing in my life giving me worth or making my parents proud of me. Yeah. I would never be a therapist. I would have never gotten a master's degree in social work if I wasn't raised by two people that really believed that an education was important and like invested a lot of time and resources into me having that. Like, I wanted to be a hairstylist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the next thing and the last one we're going to talk about is narcissistic demands. Some people with BPD frequently bring the focus of attention back to themselves. They may react to most things based solely on how it affects them. Some people with BPD draw attention to themselves by complaining of illness and others act inappropriately in public. These self-involved characteristics are defining components of narcissism. Narcissistic behavior can be especially taxing on non-borderline people as as the borderline person may not even consider how their actions affect others about 25% of people with BPD also have narcissistic personality disorder. 25%? Yeah, I don't know if that's accurate by today's standards, but mm. I Again, I we I don't believe in demonizing one diagnosis to humanize another. Yeah. So, we're not going to do that. I will say the reason that it appears like everything is about us is because our emotions are that big that for a moment, it's hard to see you. And that's why you and I talk about I have to regulate first.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and that, again, I know we've talked about that before, but I think that that is, like, something so important that we should continue to bring up until it's normalized. Like, I know and accept and understand that you have to regulate first in order for us to do what we need to do, whether that be, like, repair from conflict, get through Best Buy, you know. Um. <laughs> the Best Buy
0: story is going to haunt <laughs> me
1: forever. Hilarious. Um I I understand, accept, and know that that is the case. So when, like, you are regulating and for a split second, like, my own, like, because, like, I also have my own stuff where, like, my emotional needs were not met by my previous partners. I very much felt, like, second to a lot of things, like, in my life, in my family, so on and so forth. Um, You know, so sometimes, like, that would rub on that raw spot of, like, I'm not important but we had that conversation in the very beginning and we continue to have that conversation. And so like, even if for a split second, I feel like, Oh, my emotions are not important. I stop. And I'm like, Nope, she needs to regulate before we can move forward on anything and everything. And I know that I understand that. And I accept that. And I have always, and will always, because that's what I agreed to entering into this partnership. So, like, if, if another person cannot do that, then that's something that they need to, like, deal with, work out, do whatever. But, like, that's something that, like... And
0: maybe that doesn't work for every partnership, and, but that's what works for us.
1: Right. And that's totally okay. Like, that is okay. And I'm really
0: grateful for that, by the way.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, I, you know, like, and, and then as soon as... And it's been proven time and time again, like...
0: It's the most effective.
1: It's the most effective for us. And you come for me, dude. Like you come back for me. Yeah. Like you check back in. You 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 keep your promises. Yeah. And so anything that I would be a little nervous about of like, oh, I'm not important, or oh, she doesn't care about how I feel, that feeling, if I have it or if I don't, is always followed up on. Yeah. And you always make sure that I'm okay.
0: Even if it's like a day later.
1: Yeah, dude. Like it for me it doesn't matter. When or how? It's just that it is. like check back up on it. Like you make sure that I know I'm important. and that's all I've ever wanted, yeah, yeah,
0: all right. Last little bit of this section, they talk about three different types of borderline in the real world.
1: <laughs> not in this book. But like, okay, okay. So the first
0: type is mostly lower functioning conventional bpds we
1: don't love the low functioning high functioning no
0: the second type is mostly high functioning invisible borderlines oh and then the third is borderlines with overlapping characteristics if anyone wants to read all of this feel free but i'm gonna just give a brief overview of the three and then you and i can label me because that's fun okay (laughs) (laughs) okay so the first is mostly lower functioning This person would be under stress and cope through self-destructive behaviors, such as self-injury and suicidality. Um, They spend a lot of time in the hospital because of self-mutilation, severe eating disorders, substance use, or suicide attempts. They may be incapacitated by their illness and unable to work. They often have overlapping or co-occurring disorders. And people who are close to low-functioning conventional borderlines often find themselves living from crisis to crisis. Okay, (laughs) number two. Mostly high-functioning, invisible borderlines. These people are um, acting perfectly normal much of the time, at least to people outside of the family. They hold jobs and appear to have no trouble with the usual activities of daily living. They cope with their pain by acting it out and projecting it onto someone else. Oh, God, they give examples of Marilyn Monroe or Princess Diana. Yeesh um was prince was fucking princess die they t- they have talked about it really? yeah huh. um they may feel shame and fear they may feel as much shame and fear as their less functional more conventional more conventional counterparts but their denial is complete um they may fiercely refuse to seek help unless someone threatens to end the relationship If they do go to counseling, it may well be because someone has given them an ultimatum. And um, non-borderlines involved with this person may need to have their perceptions and feelings validated. Friends and family members who don't know the borderline very well may not believe stories of rage and verbal abuse. And then the final is borderlines with overlapping characteristics. So it says there's a lot of room in between high-functioning and low-functioning borderline people. Stressful life events are likely to trigger dysfunctional coping me- mechanisms in all borderline people. And it says, and in others who don't have the disorder, too. I like that they said that. Me, too. So they say the difference um, is in self-destruction versus uncontrolled and impulsive rages. Um self-harm versus a state of denial. Co-occurring conditions in mostly low-functioning people includes bipolar and eating disorders, whereas mostly high-functioning people includes um, substance use or another personality disorder. Um, functioning in lower functioning folks is difficult to live independently, hold a job, manage finances, and families often have to step in, whereas a high functioning person may have their Traits exhibited behind closed doors. The impact on family members of people with low functioning are major, whereas the family member may have to do like resource finding and finding providers. Parents often feel emotional, overwhelm and extreme guilt. And then, um, the impact on family members for high functioning folks, are they blame themselves for their relationship problems. Um, And there's often high conflict divorce and custody cases. So they're showing the difference, um, meaning that, like, depending on the trigger, there's you may fall into one of the other categories. So let's just, like, go through those again. And I'll label. Well, you first label me and then I'll label me Okay. because that's fun. Okay. So in coping techniques, acting in mostly self-destructive, such as acts of self-harm or acting out uncontrolled, impulsive rages and blame. Where do you think I fall?
1: uh for coping techniques yeah um probably high functioning
0: okay so you think i have more uncontrolled rage and criticism and blame than
1: self-harm that sounds horrible
0: (laughs) this is a fun game (laughs) but
1: but, like if if from what i have seen
0: yeah i think that's fair
1: i think that is fair
0: um My willingness to obtain help. So low functioning would be the person has self-harm and suicidal tendencies that brings them into the mental health system versus the high functioning person would be in a state of denial um, and disavows responsibility for relationship difficulties. Neither. Okay. Well, I can say 100% without a doubt that I'm in the low functioning side. I seek because i don't want to continue to feel so low
1: yeah well what i'm saying is like i haven't seen either of these from you
0: well i've been in care for so long
1: yeah so
0: um my co-occurring conditions fall in each category is that can't be disputed yep my functioning so low functioning would be um i have a difficult time managing a household finances and so on and then high functioning would be um traits behind closed doors i for sure fall into that category yeah impact on family members um my family members have never had to help me find care
1: no so high functioning
0: high functioning so i guess overall i would be on the high functioning side
1: Mm
0: -hmm. okay so we finished chapter two what are your final thoughts
1: um i'm really glad that we broke the chapter up into two parts because I think that that it was... It was a
0: big chapter. It was a big chapter. So in the chapter they went through all of the nine criteria yeah. for diagnosis yeah. and talked about some additional characteristics, yeah. which we just ended on.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that like if it were me and I was writing that I would have done the nine characteristics and then additional characteristics would have been chapter three. Okay. Editor. Well, I'm just saying. Um, But I, I'm glad that we broke it up because yeah. some of that stuff in the in the end of the chapter or at, yeah, at this part, at this part, the second part, um, kind of like made me feel a type of way. So I'm glad that we broke it up. So like I, my reactions were a little bit more like,
0: yeah, it's interesting because I eat, sleep and shit this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like I have some diagnostic criteria from some disorders literally memorized so none of this language scares me right and it's hard for me to like put on the hat of a person who maybe has no like knowledge or um understanding of what seeking mental health care looks like yeah so i my thought would be that this would scare someone like that's my gut instinct but like this doesn't scare
1: me right i think that like i think that this chapter particularly like would be very overwhelming. Like, I know for me, if I was reading this whole chapter, like, just... and, And if we had done just, like, all one pod, I would feel very overwhelmed at the end of the chapter. Okay. Not just because there's so much information here, but also because of, like, my own triggers and my own raw spots and some of the characteristics that they're talking about, I also have. Sure. You know what I mean? So it's, like, that's really hard... I think being a neurodivergent person to comb through, like, when you see yourself, you know, and these traits, these characteristics are being negatively talked about. You know, like, I again, don't have BPD, and I still am a little, like, oh, like, well, fuck you. You know, like, the tone thing, I'm still really, like... Yeah, that one was hard. That really, 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 like, is hard for me. I'm really struggling with that, but...
0: Honestly, though, I think this chapter overall is the best so far yes in normalizing and humanizing people with borderline
1: i agree and i think that like and it did a couple of little like these traits are not singular to the bpd community like it said that like in you know like when people are like dysregulated many people can like present with these things so i like that little like sentence i don't know where it was but um i think that that's important too i'm curious to see what chapter three is though because yeah yeah okay
0: one final word on this chapter
1: (laughs) um palatable
0: yeah my final word is just knowledge all right, y'all stay tuned next week for chapter three of the BPDBC Borderline Book Club miniseries. Yeah. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold Beautiful Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey. And we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.